Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org slash donate. For today's episode, Jeremy Fackenthal speaks with Philip Clayton and Andrew Schwartz about their exciting new book, What is Ecological Civilization? Crisis, Hope, and the Future of the Planet. As you will hear in their conversation with Jeremy, Philip and Andrew wrote this book as an accessible introduction to the idea of ecological civilization by asking eight major questions about it and drawing answers from relational philosophy, the ecological sciences, systems thinking and network theory, and the world's religious and spiritual traditions. And now, here's Jeremy, Philip, and Andrew. So this podcast is a slightly different format. Today, I am joined by Philip Clayton and Andrew Schwartz. Uh, Philip is the president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization, and Andrew Schwartz is the executive vice president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. Um, So we get a chance to chat, um, the three of us, about Andrew and Philip's recent book release um, titled, What is Ecological Civilization? So I'm looking forward to um, this discussion and diving into what's in the book. Thanks for having us on the podcast, Jeremy. Yeah, good to be here. Andrew and Philip, I wanted to start by asking you um, who you wrote this book for. Um, what was your intended audience or, or intended reader um, as you were sketching out these ideas? We recognize that there's uh, a growing field of study of ecological civilization that very difficult and brainy books are being written with lots of data and philosophy. We wanted to write a text that was an absolute first introduction. Um, it will. I think, not insult your intelligence. It will stretch readers. But the goal was not to do some advanced theory text. Eight basic questions which people have asked us over and over again. The idea was to give simple, readable answers to each one. Yeah, and in addition to that, I think as we travel around the world having conferences and and participating in meetings about this vision of, of ecological civilization, people inevitably ask this fundamental question, What is ecological civilization? And the more that question came up, especially outside of a Chinese context where people are hearing this perhaps for the first time and trying to get some grasp of what it is we're talking about, um, it seemed more and more that uh, a a book, an accessible book, introducing that very question and presenting a perspective on that would be really, really helpful. Great. Thank you. And as you mentioned, Philip, you... The format of the book is uh, geared around eight different questions. So each chapter tackles one of those eight questions. Can you describe why you chose that format? Um, and maybe something about the, the trajectory or the arc of those questions over the course of the book? I have to be fair and to say that Andrew was the one who came up with the format, having worked with or knowing about another eight-question book. So maybe I should, or seven-question book, I should let him go first. Uh- yeah, there's a, a book that Jay McDaniel did uh, years ago. It's, it's not even so much a book as a pamphlet, uh, sort of a thick pamphlet um, <laughs> called What is Process Thought? Uh, I think the first edition was Seven Answers to Seven Questions. 
And to me, it was the most useful approach in introducing what is often considered a very sort of difficult topic to wrap our heads around, process philosophy and, and process thinking. So I thought, well, I liked the format, the general idea of sort of fundamental questions that seem obvious to ask and then answers uh, that uh, to try to sort of ground it as well as giving some examples. So it's not just sort of answering with theoretical questions, but trying to provide some, some examples of what we mean um, in answering these questions. Didn't John Cobb also do a questions book? He did, yeah. And that had been one of the, the big uh, sellers uh, for John Cobb. That it's one of the texts that people ask for again and again, because a book oriented around questions that people have, which offers clear answers to their questions, is the kind of book that you want to have in your hands. And the subtitle of the book, uh, Crisis, Hope, and the Future of the Planet. Of course, as anybody who's done publishing knows, uh, titles sort of emerge in conversation with the publisher. But <laughs> I think this, this title with these three pieces, Crisis, Hope, and the Future of the Planet, actually gets at the heart of what we mean by ecological civilization, acknowledging sort of the deep crisis that we're in, which is a complex crisis that's both social and environmental. And then the need for hope, for some alternative future, uh, uh, the future of the planet, a better way forward, but something that inspires us to, to, to live into rather than just uh, responding out of fear. Um, this is, I think, for me, what was, was driving the need for a book like this. Yeah, nice. And that also gets at the, the arc or the, the flow of the questions from beginning to end. So you do start with uh, a crisis in a sense. So why... Why is this shift? Why is an ecological civilization necessary? And then move to the hope piece um, toward the end. Early on in the book, you also describe the two terms, ecological and civilization, and how the two are paired together. Uh, so sometimes people that we encounter uh, in other environmental organizations or sustainability work, uh, it strikes them as an odd, odd pairing. But can you describe how you explain that in the book and why these two terms come together? That was a fun chapter to write. Actually, for me, one of the most fun. Uh, that and and the final chapter probably I enjoyed the most. The uh, the second chapter allowed us to think first about what are civilizations. Uh, and as I started to look into it, I discovered that there is an entire field called civilizational studies, which people hadn't heard of. Uh, it's famous at University of Chicago, but um, is elsewhere also. We don't realize how many times civilizations have come and gone. That human history is a continual process of a period of thriving of a major civilization. It's gradual decline. And as it becomes, something else emerges and becomes the center for human cultures and focus and art and philosophy. There was something freeing about that because if the modern civilization as we've known it since 1600 is, looks like it's facing hurdles that it's not going to survive, does it mean the end of the human race? I gradually realized the human race in every continent we, there, our Western history books talk about Western civilizations. We have classes called Western Civ in our colleges. But in fact, in Africa, great civilizations have come and gone. In uh, South America, Latin America, in Asia. So that flow helped me get from crisis to hope because it helped me see that 
uh, we are not fixed to a particular point. Uh, then ecology help people see what ecological thinking is, what ecosystems are, how they're central to all study of the biosphere now. And then in the chapter, we try to weave those two together. No, they aren't opposing notions, but humans and ecologies, humans and parts of land, ecosystems, naturally unify and always have since the dawn of time. I mean, I think, and in, in even John Cobb in his introduction to our, to our book indicates that for a lot of people, the idea of an ecological civilization is like an oxymoron in terms. It just, it's, it's like a square circle or something. It just doesn't even make sense. It's, it's, it's a logical contradiction of some sort. Um, but I think that's because civilization as we've known it, right? This modern industrial civilization, this Western civilization, um, the civilization, if you can call it that, of, of global capitalism um, has been one that has not been living in harmony with nature. Uh, it's not been sustainable. Um, so thinking about an ecological way of living in human communities where we can live sustainably and equitably um, sort of is, is a vision of a world that works for all. So for me, one of the, the fun things about and what actually distinguishes uh, sort of the, this eco-civ movement from perhaps just environmentalism and sustainability and, and sort of ecological sciences is that we're talking about civilization. And in, in, in the broadest sense, we just mean sort of all of those pieces of society, everything from top to bottom, from education to governance to economics to agriculture, all those sort of pieces that make up how we humans live together. And rethinking those in terms of our planetary limits and in terms of the sort of long-term well-being of people in the planet. And that's like the great challenge, right? Can we do this? Can we reimagine a new way of living together that can be sustainable and just. That's what ecological civilization is attempting to do. And to piggyback on that, Andrew, you have described the need for a certain paradigm shift. Um, so this also comes in, in um, one of the earlier chapters of the book. Can you articulate for us um, what it is that we're shifting away from and then maybe some of the features of what it is that we're shifting toward? Yeah, so I love actually what Bill McKibben says in the back of our book, uh, which is that this book is a reminder that philosophy is as essential as engineering for successfully maneuvering through the obstacle course that is our immediate future. Mm -hmm. And philosophy, I think, is an important part of this new paradigm that we're talking about. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm biased as somebody who teaches philosophy, um, that philosophy should play an important role in rethinking uh, sort of human societies. But that to rethink what it means to be human in relationship to nature in a way that isn't just seeing the world as a, a collection of objects to own, but perhaps a community of subjects to know. And that that kind of fundamental way of thinking about our relationship to the world around us and not sort of separating or alienating humanity from the rest of nature, but recognizing sort of our deep interdependence um, that we humans are born of and nurtured by a living earth. I mean, even the idea that the earth is, is living in some sense, right? This sort of uh, ecological worldview, I, I think is the beginning, is sort of the foundations of a paradigm shift that then is embodied in new forms of education, new forms of economics, new forms of fill in the blank, right? Agriculture, um, that 
that sort of reflect these new insights, not even new insights. I mean, we, perhaps new to modern industrial civilization, but very much old in sort of the, the world um, at large, right? So drawing on indigenous wisdom, um, I think is also extremely important for us. Uh, Philip, I mean, I'm sure you could add to that. I think that that's a good answer. Actually, it would be interesting. I see this now for the first time. Pair what Jeremy just asked you about paradigm shift with a sense of the civilizations as something that comes and goes. And now pair that with ecology. In ecosystems, in evolution, nature tries out different structures, species in different environments. Some thrive and reproduce for a time, and then they, um, their populations get smaller or they go extinct. Human civilizations come along and try out hypothesis about who are humans and how are we related to the planet. And some of those have thrived. Native populations were low impact on a portion of the earth and um, helped it to sustain human life without harming the other living things around. That was a model that worked. Modern culture or civilization was a trial. It was an evolutionary fluke, uh, a mutation that thrived for 250, 300 years and then began to destroy the very planet that it was um, depending on. And I think that was a hypothesis or a paradigm that showed itself after 419 years to be unsustainable. Humanity now needs to say, once again, there was a paradigm that didn't work. We allow, we drop it, we let it go, and we take leadership in beginning to formulate another paradigm, another completely different model of how we dwell on the planet. I like that idea of a different model too, right? Because it's not just about, okay, change your thinking and that's going to fix all of our problems. Uh, we need new models. We need new systems and structures that can sort of be built on this, uh, an alternative worldview, right? So, and that, that comes too with, with thinking about alternative measures of success. Um, is growth our only measure of success that we're doing well? Um, well, of course, if GDP is all that we care about measuring and all we really care about is market activity, um, then it seems like it excludes a whole lot, like relationships, well-being of people on the planet, you know, healthy soil. Um, so, I mean, to rethink agriculture, for example, in a way that is, is actually cares about the health of our topsoil um, is going to lead to different practices and systems of uh, sort of consumption and production of food than what we currently have in a, a growth model of um, nature as a resource to be used for my short-term well-being or something like, or, in, or, or desires. So yeah, I think it's that um, transitioning from the, the expand, conquer, consume mentality to this sort of contract, cooperate, cultivate uh, story of being in harmony with the living earth. It's a, that's a deep, deep transition. And a lot of the other people in the, around the world who are promoting this idea of ecological civilization, like, like Jeremy Lent, for example, um, they are, are, are ready to, uh, to, to encourage people to, to recognize that an ecological civilization, the message is about the need for far deeper and more fundamental transition than is often realized. It's not enough to just drive you know, electric cars to start going for solar energy um, or doing a carbon tax or something like that. Like these are band-aid fixes. 
And, and what we need is this new, this new model, this new paradigm, a new civilization. Great. What I love about your answer is that you already begin to, to build or make the connections between the theoretical and the practical. And that's also an important component of, of this book. So it doesn't stay sort of in the lofty academic realm of theory or ideas, but um, you actually draw out ways that we can begin to build an ecological civilization or already are building an ecological civilization now. Um, it, it, before we get to that, those, some of those concrete steps, I want to raise a question about uh, what I see in the book as a sort of implicit methodology. So early on in the chapters, you lay out, uh, in a sense, a vision for what an ecological civilization could be, so what this new paradigm shift looks like, uh, and then you sort of move backward from that vision to today and begin to then roadmap in Chapter 7 um, by, by building some concrete steps toward an ecological civilization. Uh, why is this kind of methodology important for you? Mm -hmm. One reason is the question of hope or the pervasiveness of hopelessness around us. We see that when people start with the mess that we're in, trying to solve problem after problem to somehow get us out of this morass, they lose hope. We felt from the beginning that ecological civilization offered that point where hope could bud, could grow, could flower. So the book asks the reader to engage with us in a visioning process. Imagine that point where humans and the planet have found a place of harmony again, where we live in, in a symbiotic way, living with symbiosis. Now, let's take that as the fixed point, the North Star for us and then move backwards from that to orient ourselves in our problem-solving method. So instead of all this work of forecasting our current crisis and its likely parameters, let's start from the goal and backcast toward the present. That's a kind of conceptual approach. It's more um, strategic thinking. Um, it involves people uh, thinking the way that the various sectors of society could be radically changed as we move the vision, the outcome, toward today. And then the third moment that you mentioned in your question is to construct a roadmap, or as people are now saying, roadmapping. That asks people then to, to go from the broad vision and then the backcasting of the multiple sectors and focus in on one. What is some outcome that is a part of achieving an ecological civilization that you could be engaged in working on in a community, with global organizations, with an educational system, wherever it might be. There's something about that process of road mapping that also brings hope because you can see a map toward a future you desire and you can lay out the steps, recognize that you can achieve those one by one. So those would be the three terms that would be most basic to the method of the book. I think too that beginning with a, a common vision is, is sort of these broad brush strokes, right? It's, it's, we, we're not gonna start with, okay, here's, and this is actually, this is some of the, the pushback you get from the idea of, okay, what we're talking about is a civilization. 
um, in some sort of uh, colonial top-down imposition of solutions to the environmental crisis. And Andrew and Philip are going to come here from as, as white men from the West with their answers in the pocket and impose those on the rest of the world. The point is, is that I think in just like um, ecosystems are sort of built on diversity as, as a fundamental characteristic, that the vision of ecological civilization is sort of a, a common goal, a common direction, but this backcasting method that Philip described is inherently building in diversity to it. So it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of solution because we're working backward from that shared goal to our, common, our, our, our unique context from wherever we are in our own location. Um, and it has to be something that is, it's not, here's a book that has all the answers if you just follow our roadmap, but it's presenting a way of, of participating in this visioning, backcasting, and roadmapping work together um, where you are part of the, the sort of, you're, you're one of the people creating the solutions with us, right? Um, thinking together with this idea that we want to go similar, right? So I, I don't know. I, I'm not, um, I've never been in crew, but I understand that if you're rowing in the same direction, you're going to get there a lot faster than if you're just sort of splashing each other, uh, going in circles and tipping the boat upside down. So, I mean, having a common vision is, is just a practical, helpful strategy. Um, but then being able to, um, create a space and a method for people to provide their own insights, their own context, their own sort of diverse perspectives into these solutions, uh, plural, I think is really, really key for moving forward in a, in a healthy, sustained way. Nice. What, what you just mentioned also uh, brings to mind for me the fact that there is uh, a philosophy or maybe multiple philosophies uh, behind this understanding or even behind the methodology. Um, so you mentioned the idea of um, context and working together both in creating the vision and then working together in backcasting and beginning the process of road mapping. Um, so this methodology is inherently relational, um, which does in fact stem from some of the philosophical underpinnings uh, behind your view of, of an ecological civilization. Is that right? That might be a great place to tell a story. Mm -hmm. Part of the fun of writing a book when you also work with an organization that has the same mission is that you get to go out and try out the ideas. So a few weeks ago, Andrew and I were in Seoul, Korea, and um, in a small town on the northeast edge of uh, Seoul City, we were privileged to be a part of a gathering of about 25 leaders uh, from that area, many of whom knew each other, and they certainly shared some common values together. So they were like a community. Uh, the workshop that we conducted was in Korean with translators. There was no question about maybe we were dominating content because we didn't know what most people were saying. What we then brought was the method itself and a series of exercises that allowed them as a group to vision together, to backcast together, and then to construct various roadmaps toward what they were trying to achieve. What was beautiful is to see the communities of communities that form in the context of the 27 of us in the room for two days. People came knowing some of the others, so they were friends or they worked together in the same field or something. 
then individual groups of about six worked at particular tables to do a vision for 2050 uh, for Seoul, Korea. Then a different group might work at a table to do the backcasting exercise and so forth. And each of those table groups became a, became a kind of problem-solving community to achieve a plan, draw a roadmap. And then finally, the group as a whole became a group. There was an interesting final moment where this Buddhist meditation leader um, had us do a meditation and then an older woman had us do a, a, a dance, sort of like a tree where we moved together and then moved out. And there was uh, hands held in the larger circle. There was a sense that the kind of hope that we had found, especially for them who know each other and who work in the same context, that kind of hope emerged out of sharing a vision and beginning to make it concrete. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned that, Philip, because the the other piece that hasn't been discussed so far is the need for cross sector collaboration. Um, right? It, it's not so I can say, yeah, philosophy is as important as engineering. Right? Thank you, Bill McKibben, for supporting us philosophers. But the uh, engineering is obviously still super important. Um, you know, farmers are super important. Our teachers are super important. Like we need collaboration across the sectors of society and this is part of the the sort of fundamental ecological worldview right is that everything's interconnected our problems as well as our solutions um, so creating spaces where we can work together on co-benefit solutions that are addressing multiple problems at once um, is a, is effectively uh, collaborating on um, on rethinking systems and structures for a new civilization and I think that's exciting um, that people are interested and actively doing this already um, gives me hope. Uh, Andrew, in fact, I was going to go right to the cross-sector question next. So chapter seven, which is the chapter that describes the road mapping process, lists a number of different categories or um, uh, sectors of society or, or disciplines. Um, and so you describe how road mapping could work in each of those. Um, can you say something more about um, how this cross-sector approach works uh, practically? So, for instance, in an event such as the one in Seoul, uh, we've recently done events in um, Vermont in the United States. Um, how does that sort of cross-sector collaboration come together and catalyze something new? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and um, that's a challenging one in, as far as living out practically. I know... Um, having worked with somebody, uh, for example, who was trying to do um, a significant project on um, on rethinking uh, green energy using solar panels, but in a way that was also addressing economic injustices, um, you know, developing, creating new jobs, um, you know, all these sorts of things. It, it was a multifaceted kind of project. And when he was trying to find funding um, in California, it was nearly impossible to, because you're just getting passed from one government office to the next, because the way that our systems are designed is hyper siloed. Everything's fragmented. Our universities are the same way. Um, the departments usually don't talk to each other. The physicists stay in their corner, the chemists stay in another corner. Who knows what the biologists are doing? And those are three fundamental sciences, right? Right next to each other, um, sharing hallways perhaps, but not actually engaging one another because, uh, the creation of disciplinization has led to a fragmentation of knowledge, 
but the world doesn't work that way. So our problems aren't fragmented in that way, even if our government offices are. So if you have a, a um, if you want to have a robust sort of comprehensive solution to complex problems, then we're going to need to collaborate um, across these sort of uh, divides. Uh, when it comes to trying to do that in a specific event, the, the benefit is that not one person has to be an expert in all these areas. Lord knows I'm not an expert in pretty much anything, but um, it's, <laughs> it's nice to be able to say, okay, well, specialization is still important. And we need people who are specialists in economic theory. We need people who are specialists in, um, you know, topsoil and those sorts of things. And, to have them share their insights and knowledge and specializations under a common vision and sort of directionality. And I think that's the other thing is if we think of ecological civilization less like the, the ending point, right. But more as like the direction, then we realize that bringing all these, these voices together, sharing our insights and our, and our expertise um, together in sort of complex, comprehensive co-benefits type of solutions uh, is the only way to make lasting progress. Philip, I'm sure you could say all of that better than I just did. I find myself trying to think of a concrete example because, Jeremy, you're asking us to think why the chapter is concrete and what the goal um, of that is. And the agriculture is maybe the only term in Chapter 7 that occurs in two different sections. Uh, there's something about farming the land, uh, partly because without food and water, we we simply don't survive at all. We imagine uh, the concreteness in some future state, in some time when humans are living sustainably on the planet, where most of what you consume comes from within a few miles of where you live. That means that you are involved in growing the food that you eat, or you know the field where the tomatoes that you eat and the fruit trees that you get fruit from, where they come from. Um, you know that uh, in the, let's say, the small village you live in, that the school is the place where education happens. Kindergarten through 12, um, maybe uh, continuing education classes for people in various crafts, classes for older people who are retired and retooling to make their own contributions. Um, you have forms of transportation that cause you to live closer to the earth. You exchange products and the gains that you have from a good harvest or the losses you have uh, stay in the region uh, through, let's say, a financial system that's also regionally based. And I think what I want to say in closing is that even the kind of religion or spiritual practice anyway will be place-bound as well. You'll be inclined to give gratitude for the river where you fish, the fields that grow the food, uh, the compost pile that you have in the backyard to make your vegetable garden uh, more thorough. The, uh, the, if you eat meat, the um, sheep or chickens that you eat to sustain a family. Um, there's something so concrete about that form of living. And the reason why it's really important is ecological civilization is not an abstract notion. It's a notion about the way that humans live in a place. It's meant to have that kind of concreteness, which is why the culmination of the book before the conclusion is that concrete, most concrete chapter of all, chapter seven. Yeah, nice. That's great. Thank you. 
going to go back just a little bit and pick up on um, a term that's mentioned a little earlier in the book, uh, where you're describing the fact that ecological civilization has has been talked about or described in various contexts, perhaps most um, notably for many of us, the Chinese context. Um, but you use the phrase at one point, ecological civilization studies, and, and talk about this as a sort of uh, uh, not just the background for um, for our research and our work, but also possibilities for the future. Can you describe maybe what kind of work is needed to strengthen um, what in the book you call ecological civilization studies and where that could lead us in the future? Yeah. Um, to be honest, Jeremy, some of the questions are written um, to raise criticisms that we've often heard. Uh, and speaking in China or traveling in Europe or in American audiences from students and from academics. And one criticism is the notion of an ecological civilization is very visionary, um, but it is kind of utopian. It's, it's an imagining a state that humans simply don't live in with a kind of transition we can hardly imagine. So we felt gradually, all of us, I think, at the Institute for Ecological Civilization, that it's time to make the case that one can study human sustainable life on the planet in a very rigorous way. So Ecological Civilization Studies, ECS, has exactly that function. As Andrew and I are now teaching the first ECS class between Willamette University and Claremont School of Theology, we are finding that it's possible to lay it out step by step. What do we know about climate change? What do we know about its impact on glaciers and water levels and coastal cities and the various ecosystems that in agriculture? What do we know about the effects of geological changes, climate changes, on human populations? What do we know about the damaging effects of contemporary economics and alternative forms of economics and ecological economics? And it turns out there's a lot of information there and that this notion of a sustainable society is actually a brilliant way to organize the information in useful ways. That for me would be the core of ECS. And to build on that, I think what your question for me, Jeremy, was, was hinting at is this fact that, um, that ecological civilization study is, is not simply um, sort of an emerging field of study about ecological civilization the sort of narrow term used from China um, sort of in a more contemporary fashion, but that it, it represents a sort of a broader field of thinking um, and a broader field of research that has been emerging in, under a number of names. And I think that the kind of work that has been done by the, the Thomas Berry crowd in thinking about ecozoic eras and the kind of work that's been done um, even more recently with Pope Francis in integral ecology um, there's a lot of overlap and sort of shared um, sort of ways of identifying the problem as being a problem of sort of civilizational proportions and a, a complex problem that's neither uh, strictly about engineering issues or strictly about philosophical or social issues, but it's sort of all of this at the same time. Um, and that our s sort of solutions need to be of this kind of complex um, and massive scale. I say scale not in the sense of just top-down global sort of change, but also very much 
hyper-local, bottom-up. I mean, it's sort of a both-and approach. So that's something for me that I actually find um, promising. But if it was just so the Chinese like this term ecological civilization and, you know, Philip and Andrew and Jeremy like this term ecological civilization. So we're just going to try to like market this so other people will like it too. Like if that's all it was, like I'd be just <laughs> super depressed and largely disappointed in myself. Um, <laughs> but the fact that, that, it, that it represents, it's one way of describing this sort of approach, this, this sort of vision, and that ecological civilization studies is about identifying those common threads and filling it in with greater detail and a higher level of rigor than just sort of this vague notions and abstractions. Um, yeah, it, it gives it, gives it uh, some real legs. That makes me happy. Great, yeah. There's also a sense in which the term is almost auto-deconstructive, if I may. So, so you're not creating another siloed discipline, um, but inherently ecological civilization studies is cross-disciplinary or, or interdisciplinary. Can you say something about why that's important and, um, and, and how you live that out in the class? It can't look like a narrow discipline. Part of the tragedy of universities today is that narrow disciplines dominate education and thinking Disciplines tend to be value-free except for the values internal to that discipline. The world, unfortunately, is often an externality for many of the concrete disciplines, including ones you wouldn't expect that to be true of, like theology or philosophy. Um, that's one reason. Another reason why I like your phrase, did you say, to auto-deconstruct? Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that... Um, we auto-deconstruct the term ecological civilization by including an entire chapter of synonyms. I want to mm. draw attention to question five, which is about other movements that are allied with ecosiv. And by including an open-ended list, we ask the reader herself to look for other terms that might serve similar functions. Mm -hmm. We deprivilege, and in that sense, deconstruct the notion of ecosiv, the, whether it's Thomas Berry's Ecozoic Era or um, the work of David Corton, um, Yoko Civilization, the Earth Charter, um, constructive postmodernism, a term that's played a large role in China. Uh, especially in the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China, organic Marxism, um, uh, a term that also had an important role in China, Whitehead. The one that I mostly want to highlight is uh, the work of, work of Pope Francis. Integral ecology is as powerful in many ways as the term ecological civilization. The chances that this book have that we have that the world has to find parallels between a form of study that we've been describing um, and of, of deeply Catholic, but in a broader sense, a deeply spiritual vision of the world as our common home, as the Pope says. That's a beautiful connection. It's it's about saying you don't nobody captures the flag. When humanity faces global crisis, it's not going to be one term that will pull us out. It's the mindset of being communities of communities, connected with each other and working toward 
living gently on this planet. That's, I think, what counts the most. I think that's that's so that's really this is fun. This is getting me to think about new things. And the <laughs> philosophy nerd in me wants to be like, ooh, is ecological civilization a meta discipline? Is it like somehow above all the other disciplines in a way that incorporates it's about disciplines, but it's not like a discipline alongside the others? Like and started getting all is that logically inconsistent? Like what how do you figure it out? But I think that the spirit of what Philip just said is right on. Um that this auto deconstructing process um, is this sort of beautiful framework of recognizing um, the importance of this common home mentality, but that it can't be one size fits all. It can't be top down. And if it's going to be a solution oriented approach, then it has to be cross-disciplinary because that's the problem. The problem is multidisciplinary. Um, And I think what's, sometimes challenging is to want to say, okay, well, if we can take, you know, let's go look at a university and take all the different disciplines and then let's just like put them in a room and say, figure this out. Um, that's somehow going to fix the problem, right? Like if that, if we just took all the parts and then put them all together, like that would be like, you know, the, the full puzzle or something. And what we're finding is, is that an ecological civilization may represent sort of that that's some total that's more than just the sum of its parts, right? It's that something new that emerges when all of the parts are um, sort of working together for some common home, some common vision. You both have published um, numerous books and articles before this one. And Philip, I think since I've known you, you've also consciously made the shift from writing weighty philosophical or, or academic tomes toward writing texts that are uh, explicitly accessible to um, an average or um, ordinary person who picks it up in a bookstore. Um, what is different about this book for you? I joked it was the first book I ever wrote that my, my wife might possibly read. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. <laughs> it, um, it's a book that felt important as we finished it. I'm always proud of a book but not as certain that it will change the world. Um, Even organic Marxism, which had a major impact in China, was in some ways a theoretical book. It was pushing a position. But this is asking a question. And actually, I can answer your question now that we just talked about auto-deconstruct. If people pick up the book and don't say, oh, here's a new academic term that somebody is going to try to lay on me, If they look at this and they think of the title as a verb, right, to live in a civilized way, right, a way which leads to the the common good, the benefit of all humans and more than human life forms, and if it lives ecologically, there's an adverb anyway, if it can ecologize, if we can live in a way of the interdependence of ecosystems where each part contributes and each part receives back again. The core principle of life on the planet. So the question, what is ecological civilization, is the question, how then, how now shall we live? That feels important. Great. Yes. Andrew? Well, I don't know if I can follow that. I mean, that was good. <laughs> um, I think that for me, what I what I appreciate about this the book that we we did come up with is that 
it's a question book. It's the, the title is a question. The chapters are built around a conversation of eight, eight core questions. And to me that, that expresses sort of the, the intent behind the book as being a way to start conversation with the general public um, about really, really important issues of, you know, what would it look like for us to live in a sustainable and equitable ways on this planet for the long term? And that's different than a book that's attempting to provide all the right answers or a book that's simply just attempting to describe um, some narrow field or phenomena. And I think a book that's in inherently um, dialogical, that's intending to ask questions, but also to engage the reader and asking them to join us in asking the questions um, and exploring that together um, is a book that I hope could actually um, be the beginning of, of something significant um, as we as, as human communities are asking these questions together and then being able to live into this new vision of a, a better world. Nice. Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. You both have... Um, conducted your own interviews on this podcast, so you already know what the last question is. Um, but it, it's particularly important or pertinent, I think, in this uh, discussion because the book ends uh, asking about hope. Uh, and you give the reader a number of different reasons for why she or he should be hopeful. Um, so I want to ask you each uh, where you personally see hope right now. I tell the story in the final chapter, chapter eight, about being traveling to universities with other environmentalists and giving talks, go, uh, trying to encourage people to recycle. This is several decades ago, and then going out for a beer afterwards and talking about increasingly grim climate data. There was something about environmentalism as we did it in those days that didn't bring hope. We ourselves didn't believe that we could that the steps we were asking our audiences to carry out really would bring about change. Um, and as I think you could hear from both Andrew and me in the last answer, we are convinced that humans who set their eyes on that sustainable place in the future, when we finally have gotten it right, harmony with the planet, harmony with other living things, that is inherently a place of hope. And in my closing answer, I think I want to focus on that word place. Um, as I have the chance to talk to audiences around the world, I always will ask, especially young people, what is the place uh, that brings you hope? What is the place that feels like home, feels like beauty, feels like you and nature understand each other? I did that at the dinner table last night in um, Philadelphia, and I watched four other people get tears as they describe that part of the earth that they love as deeply as their parents, as deeply as themselves, that part of the earth where they can't separate their identity from, from that, that environment. When we find that place, we find hope. I know there's a place on the North Coast, we, in my family, we call it Grandma's Spot, up north of San Francisco a couple hours, that is nature that I would live for and die for. and. Um, Everywhere I go, um, the, whatever the beauty I see, the, that feeling of tightening in the heart, that feeling of being moved, brings with it 
the view of the Pacific Ocean from ground to spot. Uh, that is beyond theory, it's beyond philosophy, it's beyond economic policy, it goes right to the gut of who we are as living human beings on the planet. To know, uh, cultivate the earth, to live together in harmony with each other and with the planet, to know ourselves not taking more than we give. If there is a, a definition of spiritual well-being, for me, it would be that. You know, I think it's easy to read hope in the midst of despair as utopian idealism, unrealistic. And I think in the context where you have people, especially young people, right? Uh, millennials, Gen Z, um, people like Greta Thunberg, who are famously basically saying, you've stolen my hope. I have nothing to hope for because you screwed up our planet and you're not even doing anything to fix it. That this question of what can give us hope and what should we hope for um, is so fundamental. The, if what we mean by hope is that um, sometime in the next 10 years, the entire social economic machine that is a sort of modern Western industrialized civilization is somehow going to reverse itself in fundamental ways that's going to sort of save people from uh, feeling the, the sort of negative effects of, of climate change. I mean, that's, that's just, that there's, I, I have no reason to hope for that because it's, we're already failing. People are already suffering. It's not like what's going to happen in the future. I mean, it's, it's happening now all around the world. So for me, it's not so much um, hope in um, sort of the elimination of some sort of suffering or even potential collapse of civilization as we know it. Um, for me, what I find hope in is that there's already people around the world who are working on thinking about the kinds of things that not only need to be done in order to minimize the effects right now, but also the kinds of foundations that are needed for what comes later, regardless of, of how bad things get between now and then. In that we're oriented towards something, some kind of vision, some, some shared feeling and sense and concept of a better future together. And we can begin working toward that under a variety of names and a variety of local settings. And that that is already underway. That does give me a realistic hope. It does. Thank you both for, uh, for writing this book and for joining me today to talk about it. And um, thank you for your work with the Institute. Uh, we are indeed trying to build communities of communities that um, are already doing this work and will continue to do it in the future. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Pleasure.